The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Our program is designed to offer solutions to those individuals with exceptional needs, plus families, professionals, and educators. Dr. Sean and his guests will share ideas that you can begin using immediately in order to promote a harmonious relationship and move forward. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sean Surface. Well, good morning, my Voice America listeners. We're very happy you tuned in today. We've had people tuning in from all over the place. We're getting excited. Our listener base is getting stronger and more people are tuning into the show. People are emailing from all over the place. We've got a lot of things going on right now. A lot of people have been emailing me about the current education secretary, about the house bill that's come up in regards to education and there are a lot of concerns out there. One big concern we have, of course, is that special education is not mentioned in the new education bill. That there will be approximately a 30% cut in the education department if it's not cut completely. So there's concerns out there about how we're going to keep our supports going for our students with disabilities and with, and with adults. I do hope over the last week you were able to once again reflect on some of your successes while you were going through your challenging week. It's really important to me that you always reflect back on good things that you've done too. I know that you've had hard times and you've gone through rough challenges, but you know, today you're here, you're listening, and you've gotten through those things, and that is a success in itself. I'm excited. We're going to continue our conversation of last week today with Leanne Brown, the School Services Director for Total Programs, and a Master Special Education teacher. We started to touch a bit last week on some tools that we can use in multiple settings, home, school, community, to assist individuals with autism and developmental disabilities to succeed. One of the issues that must be understood, and I said that I was going to talk about this last week, and a lot of people are dealing with this issue, whether you have autism or living with autism or not, um, it's the issue of anxiety. Um, A lot of anxiety going on right now, and we're kind of a nation that is an anxious nation, and with so many things changing, so many things different now, over the last three months, um, there's a lot of anxiety going on. Well, one of the issues that has to be understood for individuals with autism is that about 70% plus of the population uh, live with with anxiety. And I truly believe that the number sits at like more like 100%. Most people I've worked with over the years that can explain their feelings have indicated to me that their feelings of fear and apprehension around them most of the time and around most things. So, why, why is this a thing with autism? Why so many anxious people? Well, first I want to say before we go out and describe a whole population of people, 
as Brenda Smith Myers said, and she's an autism specialist, if you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. I don't want anybody to feel that anything that we talk about on the show is for everybody. There are certain things that will describe certain characteristics, certain things that people are going through that uh, some people with autism are dealing with and others aren't. And no two people are the same and no two people living with autism are the same. It just as two it just says no two neurotypical people are the same. So we want to look at people with autism as individuals, but there are things that people are dealing with across the board. Autism grew in some big substantial numbers in the 1990s. Few people knew what autism was. Um, I remember at point in 19, probably 93, 94, um, Down syndrome was the largest disability. It was 25,001. We're currently looking at numbers for Asperger's, which is high-functioning autism, 1 in 250 births, and for autism, 1 in 60 births. And sometimes the numbers are lower. It doesn't matter if we have the exact numbers or not. Frankly, it just says there's a lot of people out there living with autism. Um, I had a whole career in the 90s giving workshops to districts about autism and how to help classrooms. I consulted with families and schools enough, and I started to see repetitions in explanations of kids, often talking about how their kids seemed anxious or hyper or sometimes angry. See, they're often getting a diagnosis of ADHD, which with autism can be difficult to understand because the ADHD is an under arousal of the brain. Thus, the person goes from thing to thing, keeping their brain aroused and awake. But with autism, it's a hyper arousal. It's too much stimulus going on, meaning that they're very overwhelmed by their environment. They're what we would call overstimulated constantly. So to give a diagnosis of, of ADHD could cause problems if that is the case that an ADHD meds are used, it could cause more challenges of overstimulation for the person. See, autism is a processing disorder. It's a neurogenic processing difference. Neurogenic meaning caused from the brain. It's a neurogenic processing difference causing the person to have difficulty taking in stimulus from the outside world. There could be noises, there could be people talking to each other, people talking to them, social interactions and disregarding those stimulus to pay attention to what needs to be paid attention to. So the person is often distracted and will keep things as redundant and as simple as possible so that no big changes come, causing more stimulus, decoding and figuring out. See, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are anxious. The world is fast, it's fleeting, it's hyper-connected, and it's filled with things that make things happen faster, whether it's computers, cell phones, genetically modified foods. More than 20 million people take meds for anxiety. 20 million people taking medication because they're anxious and fearful. Anxiety is not just one thing, by the way. It's a constellation of conditions. Sometimes these come in the form of panic attacks. Sometimes it's obsessive compulsive types of behavior. We see post-traumatic stress disorder issues, phobias, and what's called generalized anxiety disorder, or generalized anxiety. 
panic attacks can come out of nowhere and can be contributed in a sense to a buildup of anxiety cells in the body. They really last about 10 minutes, but they make the person quite uncomfortable. A person can often feel like they can't catch their breath, they're sweating, they're very scared, they feel like they're going to die. They feel like they, they have to protect themselves. Often these things are happening in unexpected situations, but they can be situationally predisposed, predisposed, I can't speak this morning, predisposed. A place where you were likely to have one, but not always, like an airport runway to a plane, like maybe sometimes you're getting off the, you're walking down the runway to the plane and you're fine. Other times you see that runway and you start freaking out instantly. Um, sometimes taking a plane may not cause any stress, and sometimes the stress may cause fear and lead to an anxiety attack in the person. Now, with obsessive-compulsive, the person has created rituals that help reduce stress and feelings of anxiety. So maybe they go and they have to touch, turn off the stove three times, or they have to touch the front door five times before they leave. Um, I had a student that, in order to use the bathroom, um, had to uh, be in her pajamas and and had to disrobe from pajamas. So at school, these rituals became almost impossible. So she stopped drinking water so she didn't have to go to the bathroom. So she didn't couldn't go through the ritual because she couldn't go through the ritual at school. And eventually she started to become extremely dehydrated, very, very sickly, and we had to get her into a hospital setting. But people... It's a rituals are there. Obsessive compulsive rituals are there to attempt to calm the person's self down. So you're trying to calm yourself, but it's a double-edged sword because people, frankly, are commonly trying to have their rituals stopped. People are trying to stop them from touching the door, touching the using the you know bathroom, whatever the situation is that their ritual. So they're constantly on the alert to try and get their rituals completed and not stopped. And that brings the person more anxiety. They also have some guilt and shame about their rituals. They know that they're not acceptable so to society. So they're constantly hiding it or trying to keep it away from others. That, again, brings on a lot more anxiety for the person. When we look at post-traumatic stress disorder, it can come from constantly being worried in an environment, like a war, but also like a classroom or a school or a certain place in the community. All can cause stress. Phobias are fears of certain things. And when you're constantly worried and stressed and anxious, this is called generalized anxiety disorder. But this generalized anxiety disorder it's, it's an organic thing. It's not well understood by most. I, I'm going to try and explain where it comes from. Why is it a, you know, uh, an organic thing, not just an environmental thing? Or why is it an environmental thing and not just an organic thing? There's a part of our brain that's very, very old, and it's called the bed nucleus of stratea terminalis. Now, do you really need to remember that? No, we're going to call, call it the bed terminalis to make it a little bit easier. It's a part of the brain that stays alert in danger. It's an old part, again, of the brain. See, we used to, we knew the saber-toothed tigers were out there, but we didn't know always when they would attack. 
So we had to be on constant alert. By the way, this is the etiology of ADHD uh, also and is another story for another day. Most of these kids with ADHD are on hyper alert. They 50,000 years ago when we were all in Africa and we started to travel from Africa and spread out, we knew what the smoke was over the hills near us. We knew that there were certain animals that we had to protect ourselves from. But as we got further and further away, we didn't know as much uh, of our surroundings. So people were there to be on alert. That was their job. Frankly, women were there to find food and tell us where to camp. And they were also there to tell their men how to protect them. See, that's why we're complete failures without women. We need you in our lives to, in order to keep us guided. Kids with ADHD commonly have that old instinctual alert button on or that bed terminalis. What it does, if you're under constant bombardment from stimulus and your brain can't sift out important from unimportant issues, then your brain will be on hyper alert and the bed terminalis will be highly active, keeping the person in that state of GAD, that generalized anxiety disorder, or constantly in a feeling of apprehension and fear. That's a pretty hard way to live, and it causes people to shut down. So what can we do to lower arousal levels? What can we do to keep the person calmer and in a more of a productive state? I um, actually, when I go into a classroom to see a kid, I, I watch what they're doing and, and how they're interacting with others. If they are a butt sitter or a knee sitter, are they sitting on their rear or are they sitting on their knee ready to walk out the door? Are they, what's their body temperature like? Is their body temperature such that they're very, very warm? Therefore, that's saying to me, yes, that bed terminalis, that is triggering like heck. And it is in high active state. You got to look at the environments that people are in. You have to see what are there. Are there triggers that are there that might set them off or, or set them into a state of anxiety? We want to help with the triggers by setting up tools. Certain things like observation, how the child is moving around, how the individual interacts with others, or does he say to himself a lot? Is there a place in the house or in the classroom where he can go that's quiet and calm? I call them safe zones. It's a small little area of the room that is devoid of a lot of things. It's usually like a two-walled area. And you have maybe a pillow and a blanket and a couple stuffed animals or something in there. Something that's going to be calming to the individual. Something that's devoid of a lot of stimulus so that... That individual can go to a place and self-regulate to calm down. But it's that self-regulation that's really difficult because the anxiety becomes twofold where you are not only anxious about things, but you become anxious about being anxious. And I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You know, you can have one problem, which is that you're anxious. But now when you're becoming anxious about your anxiety then you have two problems. 
And I don't think you want two problems. I think you want to just deal with the one. And we have learned ways to deal with this bed terminalis. One way, very simply, for the average person who goes to bed, can't sleep well at night. Why? Because their brain keeps trying to remind them all night long of the things that are making them anxious or the things that they're worried about. So they're so worried that they're going to not work on it that their brain continues. That bed terminalis says, hey, no. I'm not, you're not going to rest. You have to be on alert. You have to keep thinking about this problem. And I might even wake you up in the middle of the night and you're sweating and you're in a state of, of panic because that bed terminalis's job is to keep you on alert. So one of the things you can do is you can have a pad of paper next to your bed and you can literally write down the things that you're thinking about and put them right next to your bed and lay down and reach out with your hand and touch the pad so that you know that it's there and your brain knows that all your worries are safe on your paper and you don't need to uh, worry about them throughout the night. Your brain can let go a little bit. That takes a couple nights, but you have to trust that that system is going to work. Breathing, we teach kids how to breathe. We teach relaxation, relaxation methodologies such as deep muscle compression, we also teach people how to like tense up their arms and hold it for 10 seconds and then release it because when you release that tension, it allows those good endorphins to go into your body and keep you relaxed. We try to keep rooms cool. The cooler the room is, the less tension there is. The, the body works on calories, which are heat sources, and the body can get pretty warm. So one of the things that we try and do is is keep that air on, keep it cool in the classroom, somewhere around 68 if you can, because that allows uh, for the person's body to calm down also. So we got to look at environments. We have to look at what the person is living in on a daily basis and see, the, again, those triggers and help with triggers by setting up tools. So we're going to bring back Leanne after our break and have a conversation to discuss some of those techniques. And so we'll be back in a couple minutes. It's already our first break time. Thanks for listening. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be, and our goal is to assist your family in having a supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. 
call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back. Like I always say, I hope you've gotten yourself a little cup of coffee or a little tea, getting your little breakfast together and just sitting and listening. We're talking about anxiety this morning and anxiety in individuals with autism. And, you know, I talked earlier about people often getting a diagnosis of ADHD because the kid looks really hyper. They can't stop moving. They're, they're nervous. They have this hyper type of energy. They don't seem focused. But it's for a different reason. It's not that their brain is under-aroused, thus needs stimulus to keep them going. It's that the opposite, that their brain is over-aroused and they have too much going on. So often medications are prescribed, and I'm not a medical doctor, but this is just my own opinion. I have seen many, many kids put on medications, and these medications tend to be more of tranquilizers than anything else. They seem to just slow the kid down to sleepiness, not so much towards productive processing. And I think it's important to focus on medications that can possibly help the brain do what it needs to do and also not be uh, exhausted. Um, There are meds out there that focus on this bed terminalis, this area of the brain which, by the way, sits near the amygdala and the limbic system, all the systems for memory and for emotion. So it makes sense that the anxiety would also be in the same area of the brain and be triggered by certain things that might occur in the environment. Thus, we, we look at the environment, we go, okay, one of the things that I said was that if you are worried about something, which is another word for anxiety, then planning may be the direction you want to go in. And one of the things that we do is we help kids to plan in school. So I, when you're working with your, let me go back to this for one second. When you're working with your doctor and you're trying to figure out what can I do to help my kid, I want you to think not about so much anti-anxiety meds or meds that are anti-psychotic, which have a tranquilizing nature. I want you to think more about what would be used to reduce blood pressure, what would be reduced to reduce the overall uh, body arousal. There is a med called propranolol, and that actually was created as a state fright med, stage fright med but it's used quite often now for blood pressure issues. It's an old medication, frankly. And we've had some success with people getting off of 
other meds going on that and having us more of a sense of, of uh, calmness to them so but kids you know they need help they can't they can't eat, a typical kid can't explain their feelings well so when you have a, a developmentally disabled individual you know or an individual with autism they're going to have a very hard time letting you know how they feel they're going to show it through their behavior and we as professionals need to know how to help them in a sense before they're asking for help so I do want to bring Leanne into the conversation now to discuss some of the school ideas so good morning Leanne and welcome back good morning Dr. Sean Thank Welcome you for having me again. Yeah, it's really, really nice. I got a lot of good emails last week. They were excited to hear a teacher and excited to talk more today. You know, I've been talking today about these issues of anxiety and what you've been listening to the beginning of the show. What what is it made? What have, what have you been thinking about while you've been listening? Oh, I've been thinking about a lot of the students that uh, we work with in the school system, and so many of them suffer from anxiety, anxiety from not knowing what's going to occur in their day, anxiety from trying to keep things the same, um, Mm -hmm. because that brings them a sense of calm. So a lot of the students we work with suffer from high levels of anxiety. And so do the teachers, and so are the parents. So you've got this whole group of people, and everybody's feeling anxious. And the one thing that people who are in an anxiety state do is withdraw. They, they move away from the situations that are making them anxious, and which makes sense, and it's a good way to self-advocate. But unfortunately, that could be running out of the room. That could be yelling or getting angry at the teacher, the teacher themselves getting angry at the kids. So we, we've, we've been seeing this for a while, right? I mean, this is yeah. not something that we just came across the last school year and, oh, yeah, some people are anxious. So <clears throat> we have tools that we use. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have tools that we use to help the kids. Talk to me about some of those. Well, I think the, the tool that we use the most to combat the anxiety with the students that we work with are visual schedules. Mm-hmm. And so visual schedules is just a way to help the student understand what their day looks like. Um, and I know I'm, I'm kind of old school, so I use a daily planner to help keep myself organized so that I know where mm-hmm. I'm supposed to go. And for me, it reduces a lot of anxiety because all I have to do is look at it at the beginning of the day and I know exactly what my day looks like for that day. Sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, but at least I I know what we have I a good understanding of what I need you... to be there. Exactly, I have a good understanding of what of what is going to happen that day. Yeah, and so often <clears throat> the kids are fearful that things are going to happen that are going to be uncomfortable for them. They they're unaware, so they start inventing things in their head, whether they're able to talk or not. They start inventing things, these kind of irrational thoughts that bad things are going to happen next, so they just stick with one thing. And why do we think that just because somebody has a disability, like, okay, you said you use a day planner, that you're old school, you use a handwritten kind of day planner rather than your computer or your smartphone. Well, why would we expect that a person with autism wouldn't need that same kind of guidance for their day? 
But when you talk about visual schedule, explain that to me because I, I have an understanding of what you're talking about, but I would love our audience to really get it. What is that? How do you do that? How do you go about making it? How, what, what is it? It's a schedule that can be really simple as far as just take a sheet of paper, write down on that sheet of paper the different activities or the different assignments um, or even the different um, classes that that student will go to that day. Um, and as they accomplish them, you can just um, cross them out. I know for a lot of people, that's a big incentive to know that, oh my gosh, this is over, yay, I completed it, now I get to cross it out. So it's done. It's done for the day. And it can be right. something that you like, something that you don't particularly enjoy, um, but you know that that is finished for the day. Right, and that sense of accomplishment for one, but also knowing, okay, I made it through it. <clears throat> I don't have to do that thing anymore. I can move on to the next thing. Still, though, right. can you explain to me a little bit like what it looks like? How do you make them? Yes, so you can write them down on a piece of paper. Um, for planning purposes, you look at the student's day. Uh, you may break it into sections, so you may look at the morning section, and even that section you may want to break into two different sections. Um, so you may look at a morning section, an afternoon section, and at first you write down everything that you would like that student to accomplish during that time period, um, and then to make it simpler for them, depending on their level, you may write down every single thing, or you may chunk them into bigger categories um, to help the student. And so it can be written on a piece of paper. It can be written on a whiteboard with dry erase marker. It can be something that you type into the computer using words or pictures that you then laminate and Velcro and put on um, either a wall or a piece of paper or in a notebook on their desk. So there's a variety of ways that it can look, but it, it's just the different activities or assignments or things that you want that student to accomplish in that day. So you list out your activities, and then for some, you're able to write it down because they can read the words, but for others, it sounds like you're taking pictures of different activities and putting them in the sequence of their day, and then you, you started to say about the, the, the completion. So if you have pictures, how would you, and say they're up on a wall and they're, you have your nice little pictures Velcroed onto a, um, a board or whatever, and it's sequenced from beginning to the end of the day. What, what goes on with those pictures as the day goes on? With those pictures, the student would walk up to their schedule, take the picture off um, that represents the next activity, and actually walk that picture over to the designated area where that activity happens. And then they can either put it in an envelope at that activity, or if there's Velcro on the desk, they can just attach the um, picture to the desk and then sit down and know that at this but that's what they're working what on I'm right going to work. This is yeah. the desk that we're working at right now. And then when, they're when they've completed that activity, what happens to the picture? The picture stays there. The picture stays there, um, and then the student, um, if they need it, can be given what we call a transition card. So they may be given a card that just says schedule on it, so they know they have to walk back to their schedule 
attach that card and then get the next picture. Or you can just simply give them the prompt of go check your schedule. That's great. Uh, Yeah, in um, a lot of the classes that I worked in and a lot of the classes I see now, sometimes teachers use a timer to signal that that station is completed, and sometimes just the timer going off is enough to signal to the students, oh, it's time for me to check my schedule. So there's a variety of ways. Some students, some teachers flip on and off the lights to signal. Some teachers have a, um, a hand clapping signal that they use to let the students know. Some teachers use a bell that they ring. So there's a bunch of different ways to signal to the student that this activity is finished and it's time to move on to the next one. So... Doing scheduling, creating the schedules are a lot easier than implementing because you've got to, in a sense, convince a teacher or a parent that this thing, this schedule thing is going to help them. How do you get, in a sense, how do you get the teacher or a parent to take ownership of doing it? Because it's going to be a lot harder in the beginning. They're not, the kid's not going to just follow a schedule because you put it in front of them. So, go ahead, tell me how do we get everybody... Yeah, the creating the schedule is the easy part. It's teaching the student how to use the schedule that takes more time um, because... And the teacher and parent. I'm sorry? And teaching the parent and the teacher how to use it also. Exactly. Um, So, with the parent and the teacher component, we go in there beforehand and we explain... The schedule, we also do some role play with the, um, well, for me, it's primarily teachers that I'm working with, so we do role play with the teacher to show them how to teach the student how to use the schedule, what um, a successful transition looks like, um, and all those things. So we do a lot of teaching up front with the teacher, um, and usually for the visual schedules, the buy-in is pretty quick. Um, at this point, they're really looking for things to support their students. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times a student is um, really struggling, so they're looking for, for supports. And activity schedules, I get a really quick buy-in with. Um, and then it's just training them how to use it and then training the student. And that, that's the piece that, that takes longer. Yeah, well, the students commonly been kind of running their own show. So now all of a sudden they're in a structured situation. They don't know either that that picture card is going to mean something. How do we start getting kids to understand what the picture means, that the picture actually means an activity? How do you get, how do you get them to understand that? We keep pairing it with the with the particular activity and we provide a lot of reinforcement. So there's a lot when the kid transitions, when they check their schedule, when they transition to the correct um, station or activity, there's a lot of, of social praise that goes into that. We may also use some secondary reinforcement. In like what? That what does that mean? Case. So they may earn a particular item um, that they really enjoy just for getting to the right station. Or they may earn um, a token. I am a lot of a lot of um, parents and classrooms use token economy systems to um, help uh, students earn kind of um, like a, a stockpile of tokens or points to then turn those in later on to get um, a favorite activity or item, um, a reward later on. Mm-hmm. 
And those token economy systems are great because they teach responsibility. Like, hey, you did this well, so you're getting rewarded for it. We also have other areas in token economy systems that the person actually has to pay for their maybe like acting out behavior, but we'll talk about that another another time. This idea, though, that they're getting reinforced for using the schedule. And then I know that in the classrooms that we've worked in, the goal then becomes, okay, you've gotten reinforced for using it. Now we want the reinforcer to be the actual activity you're going to, that you're excited that when you see your schedule that you're going to computer or that you're going to writing table or you're going to outside play or whatever the schedule says that it itself becomes the reinforcing activity right that the 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 activity itself is is motivating and reinforcing and accomplishing the activity is motivating and reinforcing for them yes yeah and and i i don't think it's that kids are resistant just to be resistant i think that they are fearful of not knowing what's coming. They don't know what's going to be expected of them. They also don't want to leave something good. So if they're enjoying themselves in one activity, why would they want to leave it? See, they, they may not have the concept of a, a sequential curriculum, you know, that there's different things that have to be taught throughout the day. They know that when they're at computer time or when they're at iPad time or when they're at reading time, that they enjoy that. They enjoy being maybe read to. So when that ends, they don't want it to end. They start having challenges in the classroom, behavioral challenges. And again, I don't think it's a problem. I just think it's a, I don't think it's a behavior problem. I think it's an advocacy problem. I can't advocate for myself, but so we're going to advocate for them by putting that schedule into place and showing them, look, not only did you get to do this thing that you like here at 8 o'clock, but you're going to do it again at 11, and you're going to do it again at 2 before the school day's out. Do you? Uh, how long do you find that it usually takes a program to get into a flow? With the, it, again, it really depends on the individual student and their ability. Um, I've had students you figure out the schedule within half a day. I've had students where it's taken a week or more. So, again, it really depends on the individual student and their ability. And probably depends on those activities, that whether they're reinforcing to them or not. You know, um, believe it or not, it's a time for another break. So we will be back in a couple minutes to continue our conversation. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. We all have challenges each and every day. How do you relax and live in a calm state? On Chaos to Calm, we introduce you to the concept of Ren Shui, 
a path to feeling calmer and happier. Listen Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. And actually, Leanne and I were continued the conversation during the break, really thinking about all the different visuals that we put into place, because it's not just a visual schedule that we use. We also utilize other tools. Um, talk to me a little bit, Leanne, about a couple of the other things that you mentioned as t- visual tools that somebody can use in a classroom or in a home setting. Yeah, we use, we use a variety um, of visual strategies just because the visual strategies are more permanent. When you give a prompt to a student or you give an instruction to a student, once you say it, it's gone. Um, and so you have to keep prompting them if they don't follow through. With a lot of the visuals that we use, it's, it's a reminder for the student and you don't have to keep prompting them because that can eventually lead to prompt dependence where the student will not even engage in the activity unless an adult prompts them to do it. So some of the things that we use a lot, uh, especially when you're talking about developing new skills, is some of those skills that we want them to engage in. So say the student wants to escape an activity and so we're trying to teach them to ask for a break. We may use a card that symbolizes a break. So if that's a card that just says break on it or if it's a specifically colored card, we tend to use a yellow colored card with the word break on it. And the student in the beginning may just have to tap that card in order to access their break until they start maybe exchanging a card or even saying the word break if that's what they're capable of doing. So because we they can e- wait, wait, excuse me one second. They can easily get up and run away, or run out the room, or run, run away from the activity, which is very efficient, very easy. So you want to make that touching of the card for, for a break as easy as getting up and running out of the room, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and so they learn to associate the requesting of a break with leaving the activity for a specific amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, another another. Um, visual that we make for our students, excuse me, um, is a, um, a, what we call a voice volume card. So in this, um, a lot of students have difficulty um, kind of modulating how loud they're talking in class. And so we may use a voice volume card that on the bottom says, um, you know, no talking, and the next level is whispering, and then the next level above that 
is <clears throat> just a normal voice, and then what we call an outside voice, and then screaming. Um, and there are and colors and numbers associated with this. Go ahead. No, that's one of those things, too, that the noise volume may be individuals talking to each other, but more often what we see is an individual who themselves is just making a very loud noise. Maybe talking loudly, maybe humming loudly, maybe repeating the same sound loudly. And why? It goes again back to the anxiety issue of trying to cover up. If, if everything around me is really loud and I'm trying to listen to music, I'll turn the music up even louder so it overwhelms the other sounds. So if I'm feeling anxious about my environment or the stimulus that's coming in around me, then I can become louder or make things around me louder than the stimulus. So part of it is about the talking to others, but a big part of it is this is a sign too that the individual is starting to is is feeling anxious and trying to manipulate their environment in such a way that uh, that they feel calmer. So you started to say that the voice uh, uh, temperature gauge is done in colors and numbers. And I, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to throw out that one concept that the we often see somebody trying to make their outward or external stimulus louder than the stimulus coming into them. Yes, they do. They do do that. Um, and the voice volume card really, really helps with helping the student identify the appropriate voice um, volume for the setting that they're in. So we all know that when we go to the library, we whisper, right? But for some of our right. students, they don't understand that, and so they may talk in a really loud voice. So with the voice volume card, it really helps them. You review it beforehand with them, and you let them know that during this activity, it may be that the teacher is lecturing, and so during that activity, we're not talking, um, if you have a question, you can raise your hand, but we're not talking during that activity. If and, and wait, wait, wait. Working, and, go ahead. And, and the, the idea of we're not talking while we're doing this activity is because it would interfere with the learning process of that person, but also with others around them, and not yes. always, <coughs> excuse me, not always understanding how their behavior affects somebody else. There's actually a name for it. It's called theory of mind or mind blindness. It's the idea that I don't always know how my behavior affects somebody else. Now, we've got to be careful with this too because, again, this is not everybody. And one of the things about theory of mind and saying that, that people with autism don't get other people is saying in a sense that they don't understand any emotions, they don't understand love, they don't understand those deep types of connections between people, and that may or may not be the case with an individual. They may have difficulty understanding how their behavior affects others, or they may not. Now, for those who do have uh, challenges in understanding how they affect other people, we do have tools that we use because we want them to know this is why you don't talk so loud in class. This is why you don't just take somebody's ball. This is why if you want food that looks good on somebody else's plate, you don't just take their food because that's going to make them upset. And that idea of theory of mind or this understanding of where other people are coming from, it's a hard thing to teach. But we, we have some tools. There was a woman by the name of Carol Gray that was a speech and language pathologist, and there was a story 
of a kid who was in junior high, and the whole junior high school was in the auditorium watching a, a, a show or something. And the person who was emceeing the show was talking to the audience and saying, well, what do you think of this? And, the, and what she was asking to the whole group, but this kid kept standing up and answering the questions, and he didn't understand why he wasn't supposed to. Everybody kept telling him, sit down, sit down. Eventually, after the uh, um, auditorium activity, he was brought to Carol Gray because she kind of understood autism more than anybody else in her school. And again, she was a speech pathologist. And she, they, she said, well, why, you know, we're going to call him Jimmy. Jimmy, why did you keep talking to the guy on stage? And he said, well, because he kept asking me questions. He kept saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Well, I told him what I thought. But what he didn't get was that he was just talking to the audience in general. So what she wanted to do was create something that would assist people in understanding where other people are coming from. And she called those things social stories. So Leanne, tell me, now that I've done this kind of quick explanation of what social stories are uh, or what they're used for, I haven't really talked about what, how, what they are. Uh, they're used to get people to understand other people. Talk to me a little bit about your use of social stories with your students. Yeah, we we use social stories a lot as part of our <clears throat> whole social um, curriculum, so social skills teaching curriculum. And they're very handy when trying to get students to understand very specific um, situations. Um, one, one of the areas that a lot of our students struggle in is making mistakes. They don't like to make mistakes, um, and sometimes that's simply that they don't want to be wrong. Sometimes it's that when you make a mistake, you have to erase your work, and then it t- you know you have to redo the work, and that's just takes so much effort for some of our students, so they don't want to make a mistake because they don't want to have to redo the work. So there's a variety of reasons. Um, but sometimes when they do make mistakes, they may have a little bit of outburst, um, and it, it, it can impact the other students around them. It can also impact their social interactions with the others around them. So writing a social story around particular um, things that may impact the student is very helpful to help them understand. I actually have a brief social story about making mistakes yeah, if I can read it. because we're talking about them, and, I, and very few people besides people who use them all the time know what we're talking about. So great. Give us an example. Okay. So, um, and this is just a general one um, that was for one of the students we worked with, but you can, you can modify it to make it more specific for each student. So the, it goes like this. So if I make a mistake on my work, it is all right. Everyone makes mistakes. After making a mistake, I can go back and fix the mistake. I will try to remember not to make the same mistake twice. If I do make the same mistake again, I can go back until I get it right. That's how I learn. That's how other learns. That's how others learn too. So it's, a, it's just really simple. You know, like yeah, now it's okay to, to make mistakes. Person. Like when would you share that with that person? I would share that with that person. Um, well, they're already usually at a point of frustration with making mistakes, so then we introduce it before the frustration happens. Because once a student is already showing frustration, it's really hard for them to learn. So we just want to make them calm, 
um, and then we'll introduce the story once they're calm or before they even start their work to remind them that it's okay to make a mistake while you're working on your math problems. You may have to erase them. Perfect, because the one thing that you said that people really have to understand is that it has to happen in vivo. It has to happen during the actual situation. You can't talk about it three hours later. You can't just pull out an old picture or an old social story and try and use it. People, like, create these social story, like, um, manuals or, or books or whatever, and you really need to draw it at the time. The social story teaches from the title. So it needs to the kid needs to know. Okay, this is what I'm working on right now. This is how I work at my desk. The social story is often written from that first person's perspective, too. So they have to know it's coming from them, and a social story can answer some WH questions like why and what. But there's actually a formula for the social stories, and what we look at is we want to have four types of sentences in a social story. One is a descriptive sentence. It defines the situation. On Wednesdays, I ride the bus. Then you want to have a perspective uh, 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 sentence also. And that describes reactions and feelings from others. The driver likes me to be quiet so he can drive the bus safely. Then there's a directive sentence. It's an individualized statement. It's like an I statement. I will try to read my book and stay quiet. And then there's an affirmative sentence. And that reassures the student. The driver will be happy and I can ride safely. So the whole social story is I on Wednesdays I ride the bus. The driver likes me to be quiet so he can drive the bus safely. I'll try and read my book and stay quiet and the driver will be happy and I will ride safely. See, we gave the other person's point of view. We gave the, the instructions of what we expect from that person. Uh, what the, in a sense, the directive is, and then we affirm them by saying, hey, you know, you can, you, you're going to come out good at the end of this. Um, when you're teaching social stories, do you, uh, what's the uh, acceptance on those? And we are, unfortunately, again, we only have a couple minutes, but what's the acceptance on those from parents and teachers? Actually, the acceptance has been really, um, really good. They enjoy them. Um, a lot of the teachers that I've worked with actually enjoy writing them also. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that's very nice is that a lot of the students that we work with have iPads, and so there's apps for the iPad that help you write social stories. So the student can have it right there on their iPad. It's easily accessible. The student can sometimes even help you write the social mm-hmm. story, depending on their level. So it's really easy to access. They're usually really easy to generate, especially with um, all of the applications and all of the technology that's out there right now. So we've had a really good response to them. Well, that's excellent. And, you know, you have, over the last two shows, discussed some very crucial ideas for the classroom, how to help people in the classroom, how to help students. Unfortunately, we don't have enough. We're out of time. Um, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the show, talking about the different technologies that you use with students, and it's just been really great having you, Leanne, so thank you. Well, we'll thank you. you. Thank you we'll, for, for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. We'll have you again. Do remember that on Strategies and Solutions, taking on the challenge with Dr. Sean, we're about your successes, and know that each day can be the new future you dream of having in your life. We'll see you next time. Blessings. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the challenge. Be sure to join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.